Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good week, and it's hard to believe we've just finished the second full week of January 2021. It's gone by fast, but the older we get, um, time does move quickly. However, it's up to us as individuals on how we choose to exercise our time uh, because uh, I've always believed that um, while we all have the time, it's up to us as individuals on how we make the most of it, because that often can define us for who we are, not just short-term, but uh, long-term. And um, my wife and I are, have been fortunate enough that we've uh, been able to visit um, many uh, unique places in uh, 15 and a half years of marriage, but we also know that there are a lot of other places that we want to get to, and it's easy to think that you have all this time, but sometimes you don't, and that's why you've got to make the most of the time that you do have and be able to and be able to do the things that you want to do when you know that you can uh, pursue them. So, uh, here we are discussing Wedding of the Waters, uh, the Erie Canal and the Making of a Great Nation, Peter Bernstein's uh, novel. T today's podcast uh, will be the last of uh, part two, being the action begins. You know, I'm sure many of you are wondering, okay, when does the action fully begin on construction of this canal? In other words, how much more time is it going to take before approval not just approval, but say final approval, that is legislative approval, to allow the construction of this project to uh, take place. But before we get to that final approval, we're going to talk about the timeline from 1810 to 1817. That's nearly about seven and a half to eight years, and I'm sure some of you are wondering, how can we talk about this much time in this uh, particular podcast uh, discussion. Well, believe me, I can make it happen, but I also know how to do it right. So here we are with our first uh, lead-off bonus question here. As 1810 comes to an end, what did the future hold for New York in garnering support for the Erie Canal project? Well, remember from the previous podcast how the uh, seven commissioners journeyed throughout all of New York State, uh, especially along the proposed uh, route that the canal would go from Albany to uh, Buffalo, and the seven commissioners visited uh, numerous towns like Utica, Rome, uh, Schenectady to Buffalo, even ventured into the area that would become known as uh, present-day Syracuse. They saw everything, and they saw potential. But as for the future, well, that's a whole other story right there. So as 1810 comes to an end, the future for um, support behind the Erie Canal project, sadly, is going to turn bleak. How so? Well, the commissioners, most notably DeWitt Clinton and um, Governor Morris, went down to uh, Washington, D.C., to um, propose their findings to President Madison. Now, James Madison is another Virginian. He is the third, three out of our first four presidents are Virginians. Nothing wrong with that, but 
when it comes to um, what do you call it, having uh, or let alone sharing agreements between North issues involving North and South by this point, we can already see that there are uh, sectional tension or let alone sectional conflicts, I should say. So President Madison's problem, it's, it's kind of a trend here. You know, Jefferson, before he left office, had a hard time specifically stating what, um, what projects would be used with the surplus money for internal improvements. Well, James Madison's in that same boat. He has uh, a streak of indecisiveness in him to make commitment behind supporting projects. This also resorted to debating on what the Constitution allowed the federal government power-wise to have authority over. In other words, there was nothing specified in the, in the U.S. Constitution that stated the government um, has the power to, um, to build um, mass-scale projects like bridges, canals, dams, you know, the, Fed, the Constitution does state that the government has the power to maintain an army and a navy, as well as um, to coin money, uh, to regulate commerce. But there's nothing in there that states about its powers and how to go about financing um, canal projects. So Madison has a constitutional debate that is a, a, one that takes place in Congress over who has the power to do what involving a project like this. And then to make matters worse, come June of 1812, along party lines, it was a partisan vote, Congress declares war on England, and that's why we call that Forgotten War, or should I say America's Forgotten War, the War of 1812. You know, it's one thing to declare war on another country, like England, who is still a very mighty uh, superior um force to reckon with, but this is all in the name of uh, getting back at England for her um, acts of impressment on American sailors on the high seas to where our ability to um, freely navigate the waters is um, very restricted. And yes, but it, as I said a moment ago, it's one thing to declare war, but if you don't have enough broad support from the American people, broad congressional support, or let alone even a proper plan to defend your nation's capital, then how can war itself be justifiable? Well, a good book uh, to read, and I'm sure those of you who are listening to this podcast series also were with me when I did uh, Steve Vogel's Through the Perilous Fight from the Burning of Washington um, to the Sp Star-Spangled Banner and the Six Weeks that Saved the Nation. Uh, if those of you who haven't read this book, I strongly recommend reading the book because it will give you a better appreciation for the War of 1812, why it's often referred to as America's Forgotten War, but how the war itself um, truly changed um, the uh, perspective behind um, what was appropriate and not appropriate to use in terms of um, military um, force. In other words, I'll tell you this much. Um, the debate over standing armies was a huge um, matter. Um, those who had signed the Constitution and after the Constitution went into effect, were, there were people who were very skeptical about the presence of a standing army in times of peace. 
well, when you have when you go to war, you need to have an army. You need to have, you know, a military base that can defend your country. Well, long story short, James Madison believed that the militia could come out and take on the mightiest empire in the world in the same way that militia were present in the American Revolution. Well, Madison had to learn some very, very hard lessons, and that was one of them. But anyways, back to our uh, focal point here for this uh, podcast uh, discussion, that the War of 1812 itself would take precedent above all things classified as internal improvements. In a few short years after Jefferson, or should I say Thomas Jefferson, left office, being in 1809, when he left, we still had we still had somewhat of a surplus, which was good considering how much damage the Embargo Act of 1807 had done two years earlier. But when Jefferson left office, there was an existing surplus of um, 6.3 million by the time 1811 comes around, but it would result to a deficit, sadly, of 10.5 million by 1812 and would grow to 23.5 million. Why did we go from surplus to a deficit? All in the name of war, folks. Uh, sometimes when wars happen and we and, and a country goes off to war, military spending, you know, is important, but sometimes the spending expenditures go so high to where people are, where uh, legislators or the government itself is borrowing money that it doesn't have, only to have to pay off debts that will incur over time to where, you know, say interest rates are high on those debts. Basically, it's deficit spending. And the war itself forced the government to, to quadruple its spending by four times the amount of money being spent than what was originally allocated. Wow. So, you know, surpluses don't last forever, but if you don't spend the money wisely, it, it turns it not only into a deficit, but a huge deficit that can balloon out of control. President Madison's inability to understand New York State's transportation needs, along with lacking broad support for declaring war on England, left New Yorkers in a state of betrayal. I can see how those in New York State truly did feel uh, betrayed because, you know, here they've been told that, oh, yes, I'm big on internal improvements, or yes, the money should be used for internal improvements, but if you don't ever specify what the internal improvements are going to be in terms of how to, of where to use the money, then how can you have trust in an institution above, in this case being the federal government? Another question to factor in is the following. Despite all the ups and downs over the Erie Canal project, did New York State have a solid history behind financing projects geared to private sector business? Yes. Financing ranged from providing assistance to farmers in productivity improvements, and by 1818, multiple charters were granting uh, to manufacturing firms unique perks such as jury duty exemption to manufacturers of machinery whom were free from seizure for payment of debts. This is a great way to entice people to um, 
move to the state. And it's also a great way to say, hey, you know, here we are, while we might be struggling with getting the federal government to assist us with this grand project, we still have a solid record of doing other um, financial projects that have resulted in, um, that have yielded meaningful results. Now, March of 1812, the state of New York, led by James Geddes, determined that the total canal cost for the Erie Canal alone would be about $6 million. Even $6 million by 1812 standards, that's a lot of money for that day and time. Here's another bonus question right here. Who becomes governor of New York before America goes to war with England in 1812? His name is Daniel Tompkins, whom was elected five years earlier in 1807. And I should point out that he serves as governor of New York uh, through midway of 1817. Um, but Daniel Tompkins is a unique character. Now, there is a county in New York State known as Tompkins County, named in his honor. It's in the Finger Lakes region. It's also where a prestigious Ivy League school is found in uh, New York State, being Cornell University. Now, about four years ago, my wife and I uh, vacationed in the Finger Lakes. Uh, back in uh, April of 2017, we spent a day in um, Ithaca. It's a great town, and we got to... Um, venture into the uh, commons the downtown commons and uh, and that was uh, that was very nice we even uh, visited a uh, winery um, and there in Ithaca is known for its um, outdoor parks and one of them is a uh, Tagonic Falls State Park if any of you all who are outdoors people uh, definitely uh, check out Tagonic Falls uh, there's also Robert Tremaine State Park as well as um I think it's uh, Buttermilk uh, Falls as well. So um, Ithaca is also referred to as the place for uh, gorges. So uh, what is there to know about Daniel Tompkins? Well, he served as New York's governor throughout the entire duration of the War of 1812. He served in Congress along with the New York State Supreme Court. He successfully restructured the New York State militia during a time of war. It's also interesting to note that Tompkins himself has a good um, friendship with DeWitt Clinton until 1812 when Mr. Tompkins, or I should say Governor Tompkins himself, backed James Madison's re-election for presidency. And whom did Madison defeat in 1812? Most of us probably don't know this, and that's fine. But he defeated DeWitt Clinton. So I could see how DeWitt Clinton probably felt snubbed by Daniel Tompkins. Oftentimes, you know, when just because politicians are friends, you know, we'd like to believe that they would be friends forever, even if they have differences on some issues. But sometimes um, when it comes to matters like this one, it can cause a rift and it can sometimes lead to complete um, separation to where the friendship itself is no longer meant to be. Now, in 1810, I'm going to point out some economic figures right here that are important to understand, which will probably better explain how we went from a great surplus to a out-of-control spiraling deficit. In 1810, the total exports were $67 million, with roughly two-thirds 
or more going to Europe. That is about 67% or more of those exports going to Europe. However, when Congress declares war in June of 1812, exports fell by 40%, and shipments to Europe were cut in half, and by 1814, total exports were only 7 million. So if you think about it, from a four-year span, you went from 67 million on the positive side, or let alone the plus, to just to not even um, to just below 10 million, being at 7 million. I mean, that's a loss of 60 million dollars in four years' time, folks. And if you think about it, that's really almost 15 million dollars a year in lost. Um, we call it lost revenue um, for exports. Think about it, 15 times four is uh, 60. So. $60 million uh, shortfall is a big deal. Now, uh, were DeWitt Clinton and Governor Morris totally against Congress's decision to declare war on England? Absolutely. I have no doubts that there weren't any... Well, there may have been an exception. The only person I could think of may have been Daniel Tompkins, given that he uh, supported James Madison's uh, re-election bid. But... DeWitt Clinton and Governor Morris were totally against it. How so? Well, DeWitt Clinton believed that the U.S. was not prepared to fight a mighty nation like England, and he was very right about that. As for Governor Morris, he felt that the war would benefit southern states given that their economy was based on agrarian. Well, this is where sectional interests and tensions are mounting. Bonus question time here. Given how the War of 1812 didn't start well for American forces on land, where would the greatest success come? The answer is the following. It would come at sea, which included key victories and battles along the waters of Lake Erie. And when I think of late the Battle of Lake Erie, I, tend, I think of what happened in 1813, uh, September of that year, when uh, Command Commodore Oliver Hazard Peary led his um, barrage of um, ships onto the waters of Lake Erie. And just when the, it looked like they were going to be defeated, a stroke of luck came about to where Oliver Hazard Peary's rally, or his theme, Don't Give Up the Ship, prevailed to where they captured a handful of British ships and morale was greatly restored. But there was another famous ship that had a huge reputation. It was the USS Constitution, or the nickname Old Ironsides. Our Navy was greatly outmatched, but we had the right leadership and we had the right frigates we also had the right amount of uh, equipment on those frigates to go up against the big boys of the British Navy. Had it not been for those naval victories at sea in the early uh, part of this war, I think it's fair to say that maybe the war itself would have um, ended. But Lake Erie, I should point out, is the western was the western terminal to the proposed Erie Canal. Lake Erie is very uh, vital for many reasons. It's not just so much because it's a body of water like the other four great lakes. 
but I'll tell you all right here. Before and during the War of 1812, shipbuildings, shipbuilding itself along the shores of Lake Erie was hard to come by. How so? Well, in order for there to be shipbuilding, you need to have stuff like, you need to have facilities like sawmills or factories to produce those goods. There weren't any of those. So, therefore, production is at a stalemate. The closest factory was 100 miles west of Buffalo in Erie, Pennsylvania, which borders um, New York State as well as um, north, Northeast Ohio. So, given that the closest factory was 100 miles west of Buffalo, being Erie, Pennsylvania, this did, in fact, help U.S. naval forces on Lake Erie greatly because uh, this, uh, this factory in, in uh, Erie was able to provide laborers that ranged from blacksmiths to caulkers, including resources like canvas, like canvas rigging, cannon shot to anchors, but no cannon. Why so? Here's the kicker. The cannon was transported by road from, e from the East Coast. And what do you know, folks? Roads aren't that great. You know, I mentioned from uh, the previous night's podcast about how inadequate roads are, how much more it costs to ship goods by road than it would, say, by water. Um, roads are, while roads are great for, for certain means of travel, traveling by road is like bar being on borrowed time. There's no, you know, if you made it safe from point A to point B on a certain route one day, that's great. But there's no guarantee that you might have the same kind of uh, navigable success by road the next day. So here's a, another bonus question right here. Did the War of 1812 expose our nation's transportation inadequacies? Yes. A lack of proper supply amounts. That is, um, provisions that would need to be supplied to our military given that we were fighting a northern campaign at the early onset of the war, you know, as far west as what we now know as Detroit, Michigan. We were fighting in um, a place outside of Toledo, Ohio, known as Fort Meigs. We, um, we were fighting along the Niagara frontier. We tried a couple of times to invade Canada because we wanted to liberate uh, the Canadians given that the British uh, controlled Canada, but we had to learn the hard way that the Canadians actually were loyal to the British crown. But the bottom line is the lack of proper supplies being distributed to our military led to, the, to our inability to perform operations big and small, and wagons carrying these supplies were constantly breaking down due to bad roads. Government spent more money just to ship the goods from point A to point B by road. So, isn't it fair to say, or smart to say, that, hey, if these goods were moving by, by waterway, let's say this Erie Canal had been built before the War of 1812, wouldn't it be fair to say that supplies would have reached their destinations in a reasonable time, so this way our military would have been better equipped? Absolutely so. Absolutely so. Another bonus question here is the following. 
given um, the War of 1812 had ended in 1815, what strategy did commissioners from 1810 study, from the 1810 study, do that would lead to restoring hope for Erie Canal construction? Well, men like Thomas Eddy and Jonas Platt proposed a plan that would involve the greater public for broader support. And, of course, Mr. DeWitt Clinton approved this as well. This is a smart move because in 1810, while going before, um, while having the state legislature nominate the uh, commissioners to have them do the project to survey New York State, while all of that was great, think about the people living not only in New York State but in New York City. Their voices need to be heard too. The commissioners need to hear from them. Of course, yes, they could hear a lot of people in, fav in favor of this project, and they could also hear those who are skeptical about it. But the bottom line is, in order for the project itself to really have a chance of making it um, big time, and not just big time, but a grand reality, you have to go before the people. So, on December 3rd of 1815, a meeting was held at City Hotel in New York City with a large audience meeting was a success and it led the committee to organize more meetings in New York City along with 25 cities in New York State. Committee members messages revolved around lessons from the War of 1812 and how movement of goods was hindered due to the existing inadequacies as well as securing the future with canal a.k.a. Erie Canal, and how better transportation systems led to less hassles along with the reduction in overall costs which were hurting government to move goods by land before and during the recent war. You know, sometimes it takes, uh, even though, yes, we were victorious in the end with the War of 1812, there were many hardships that we learned and I will tell you this too, our nation's capital um, was burned in 1814 by the British. So was the White House. All in the name of failure to secure our capital and our um, government buildings. All in part because there was a um, Secretary of War named John Armstrong who was whom was firmly convinced that Washington, D.C. would never be attacked, in part because it was a wilderness. He, he, was, firmly, he was firmly convinced that, that there was nothing available that would, um, want, that would make the British want to burn the Capitol. Well, how wrong was he? He was a complete fool. And what happened in uh, eight in uh, August between August and September of 1814 it was like the equivalent of a 9/11 but i will um save i i will let you all my uh listeners who have not read uh Steve Vogel's through the perilous fight from the burning of washington to the six uh from the burning of washington to the star spangled banner in the six weeks it saved um the nation i will let you all read more about why the burning of Washington was so um, profound, and how it um, and how it was the 9/11 for its time, but basically that the war itself was really a turning point 
and how in order for our nation to be a better nation, we had to improve upon our existing transportation system. Otherwise, it's like what George Washington said in his time, if we didn't improve, we would still remain like the equivalent of a third of a third tier uh, country. Now, it's interesting to note that before the Erie Canal was built, there were a few canals that did exist in the United States, but all of them were less than 50 miles in length. The one that um, that was built um, by um, the end before the 18th century ended was the Middlesex Canal in Massachusetts that um, stretched for about 30 miles in length, or not so, yeah, 30 miles um, that went 30 miles long. That was probably the the largest of the canals that were in existence at the time, but. The number 363 is important because that's the number of number of miles proposed for the Erie Canal that would extend from the east being Albany to the west uh, Buffalo. Now, here we are moving on to 1816. February 1816. The first green lights. Did you hear that, folks? Green lights. I think we're moving on up. The first green lights for moving forward with the Erie Canal project take root. A bill that was approved would allow for $20,000 to finance all surveys, including five new commissioners to replace the previous group of seven. The bill itself would require commissioners to come up with strategies for raising $6 million in financing the canal. The bill also required commissioners to present plans for extra canal going 22 miles north from Albany to Lake Champlain. This would be known as, known as the Champlain Canal, the northern extension of the Hudson River that would um, link the rest of New England. A lot, of, um, a lot of headway is now being made in part because the legislature has now been able to agree upon something that's uh, big. They now know that the time is becoming not just ripe, but right. Now, the five new commissioners are the following. DeWitt Clinton, Stephen Van Rensselaer, for whom Rensselaer Polytechnic um, Institute is named after, Joseph Ellicott, Myron Holly and Samuel Young. Now, what would be the first decision that the new commission um, decides upon in how to go about um, implementing the construction of the Erie Canal? Well, how about the commissioners deciding that it that it would be best to div, to divide the proposed Erie Canal into three sections covering all 363 miles? I think that's a smart choice right there. Section one is going to be a downward will in, cover a downward incline western portion running 165 miles from Lake Erie to the Seneca River. Section number two being the middle section, 
uh, which which includes having gentle rises and falls in the landscape that covers 72 miles from Seneca River to Rome at the headquarters of the Mohawk. Number three would be the eastern portion with a large steep downward incline over 126 miles from Rome to Albany on the Hudson. Well, I think it's a smart idea to have this um, project be um, divided into three, broken into three sections. So, and then we're going to find out who's going to be in charge of the, um, of the sections. Now, um, before we find that part out, here's a question right here. Where would money come for financing the project? There's two answers. Number one, the money's going to come from both east and west. Number one, from the west, it will be tax on salt. Not just tax on salt, but the salt production around Onondaga County and where Syracuse is. And then number two, from the east, being a tax on steamboat passengers from multiple directions traveling westward from New York and eastward from Lake Erie. Remember, folks, uh, steamboats, as we know, uh, especially Robert Fulton's steamboat that he um, built in 1807, the Clermont, which provided round trip from New York City to Albany and vice versa, that's had a lot of success. So why not have the, you know, steamboats are going to be vital going up and down the Erie Canal in the east-west direction. Now, um, are there any civil engineers um, in the United States at this time? No. They're not, a, they're not a whole lot of engineers. But can the job be done still? Absolutely. I mean, we've already been able to prove for a direct fact that there have been countless surveyors and um, mathematicians... Uh, people who are ever so knowledgeable who are putting their own lives on the line to make this um, actual vision a, a true reality that can be achievable, or achieved, let alone. So James Geddes and Benjamin Wright will be in charge of the western and middle sections, whereas Charles Broadhead will have the eastern section that he will be in charge of. Now, on uh, February 15th, 1817, this is a very um, monumental step right here. The five commissioners will pre presented their final report to the New York legislature. So this is what's going to make or break as to whether or not the initial groundbreaking for the Erie Canal will actually finally take flight. There's a bonus question right here. Per the Commission's findings, what would be the total amount for constructing the Erie Canal? I'll give you a number. It's between four and a half and seven million dollars. The answer is 4.9 million, covering the entire distance of 363 miles from Albany to Buffalo, with 83 locks and 18 aqueducts. The cost per mile came out to $13,400. Um, 
Interesting enough, Robert Fulton, 10 years earlier, had thought it would co cost at least 15000 But what do you know? Um, that's about a $1,600 savings. So, for $13,400 being the cost per mile, that's not too bad. As for the Champlain Canal, which, which will go through, that cost will be about $900,000. Here's a little other interesting note to point out. The Erie Canal dimensions will be 40 feet wide on the water surface, 28 feet wide at the bottom, with a depth of 4 feet. On April 15, 1817, the New York Senate approves the bill creating the Erie Canal. Well, I must say now that we are at this point now where um, where it's like the equivalent of one giant step for mankind, especially when man touched the moon for the first time back when uh, Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin made uh, history in 1969. Now, on July 1st of, of 1817, um, Commissioner DeWitt Clinton becomes governor of New York. And to end this um, podcast session on uh, part two, which we're wrapping up, the bonus question is the following. What was significant about July 4th, 1817? Well, for one, we know it's Independence Day. Our nation has celebrate, will have celebrated its 41st birthday by that time. James Monroe, I should point out, is our nation's fifth president. He's also from Virginia, but what makes James Monroe stand out a little bit more differently than from, uh, say, Thomas Jefferson and uh, James Madison is that James Monroe actually is in favor of internal improvements, and he, is in, he has admitted that he is in favor of this Erie Canal project. He wants it to go through. He knows uh, firsthand just how vital this canal is going to be for ensuring that our nation's national security won't be compromised. James Monroe's presidency will be marked by what's known as the era of good feelings, and his vice president is none other than Mr. Daniel Tompkins. So, besides July 4th being, you know, celebrating Independence Day, what what was also significant about that date? Well, the first beginnings, folks. The first beginnings of the construction on the Erie Canal take place just outside Rome, which is on the outskirts of Syracuse. The day would be marked by many speeches, not just for uh, July 4th holiday, but also in part because of the groundbreaking uh, construction that's taking place on the Erie Canal itself. The canal's first signed contractor was present. And Rome was the first town in New York where the project broke ground. So people were there to witness history, folks. They were there to witness what had been in the works for for about nine for just over ninety years, nine decades almost alone. You know, Cadwallader Colden was the first to explore the Mohawk Valley and to realize that, hey, this area does have potential for, uh, for canals, to, for a canal itself to move 
in an east to west direction. You know, if George Washington had been alive and knew what had just happened, he would have been ecstatic knowing that finally the gray clouds had been lifted and that this envision that he himself had is now going to become an actual reality. Now, while the groundwork, or let alone I should say the first beginnings of the construction on this canal are going to take place, and that's great, there are still going to be challenges along the way. And now that we will be getting into part three of Wedding of the Waters, we're going to learn about those challenges, but we're also going to learn about how they were overcome, about how we were able to overcome them, and how uh, the triumphs still emerged. Well, folks, um, we've covered a lot of ground, and I look forward to being back on the air again with you all here soon. And, you know, now we can say the action has officially begun for good. And as for part three, that's going to be um, titled uh, the following, just so that you all have a heads up notice, The Creation. That is the creation of the Erie Canal. Well, thank you again for listening, and I hope all of you have a good weekend, and stay safe. Take care.